but uh, grace in the church is the subject today. Uh, we're supposed to talk about um, the hierarchy, the why we have a pope, um, why we have bishops, um, and um, basically what membership. Well, we're going to talk about a little bit about membership in the church, but mainly it's the idea of um, is the church a everybody's chair over here, Jen. You sit at my right hand. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, is the church a medieval construct or a Constantinian construct? I heard this the other day, um, that the church is a Constantinian construct uh, that happened after 313, the Edict of Milan, kind of, um, and this, this huge bureaucracy was born out of the... Um, desire of Constantine to have order and to control. So the um, that if that's the one side, you know, and then of course the, the view of the reformers was um, all of that construct was artificial, and that we needed to return to um, the time before that. Of course, then they went about creating their own. Oh my construct. <laughs> so, um, because very quickly it became obvious that you know it was really hard to manage a little house church kind of thing. So I think that soon you had the Calvinist structure and the the Lutheran structure and the Episcopalian structure eventually, which was um, as as you know it was just different. It wasn't that it you know there had been a, a going back. So having said that, though, it is a, a charge worth looking at and kind of looking at the church um, and how it's grown. So what I thought we would do is, um, just, let me, just so that I'm straight because I left my catechism um, home, uh, what the numbers that we gave you to read here um, on this subject, uh, what we got here, it's two, 2083 to 2, okay, so you had a nice big chunk. I think it's all in the commandments, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's all in the commandments, so yeah. we didn't do any, uh, we didn't read anything on the church? Right. What? What How did before? we not do that? Hmm? Did they have to do some reading before on the yeah. church? Did, did you guys read anything before? Because it looks like part one. No. no? Okay, well, then we're going to have to give you the reading to do afterwards, and I'm going to set it up, because we really can't talk about, in fact, it was a little tricky last week talking about the Mass without having talked about the Church and the sacramental theology, because these things flow from that. So um, the one you want to read that we need you to read is called Lumen Gentium. Uh, it's called The Dogmatic Constitution on the Church from Vatican II. I can't believe we didn't have that assignment down on here. I must have screwed up. It looks like I left it off and then never went back and put it in there. Um, okay, but the document on Vatican II, there were two dogmatic documents at Vatican II. Vatican II was a self-reflective moment that the Catholic Church went through in the 60s where they called all the bishops of the church to Rome for a five-year period, and they wrote 16 documents to help the church negotiate the modern world. And two of them are dogmatic. One is on the um, divine revelation, the Bible, what the church teaches on divine revelation, and the other one is on the church. Mm-hmm. So you need to read that, and we will um, we will talk about specifically um, um, in the class in divine revelation, which is next week. So you can get it off. Clayton will send you the link. It's yeah. on um, the internet to yep. to the document. <laughs> but you should probably own one of these anyway. And on your syllabus, you'll see mm-hmm. um, session number eight. It was assigned for that. Oh, it was? Okay. And also a section of the catechism starting at 748. Oh, all right. So, so that helps. It might then. be a matter of just going back to might that might be stuff. going back. Okay, very good. So, um, all right, I want to throw out there, um, <clears throat> um, we, we set up this problem of God continuing to want to create human beings. He's not done with us yet. 
not done with this being. But we have broken apart from him, so he needed to create a means through which to continue to be in, um, have us be receiving his life so that we would not die in this life, so that we would be able to live and flourish and continue to, um, to, to continue the race and continue to uh, be the objects of creation and the, the, the summit of it. So um, the whole plan unfolds, you know, the preparation of the people, the um, introduction of the people to God, you know, this is the Old Testament, um, and then and then you have the end of the Old Testament, you know, Jesus, or God saying through one of the prophets, now I'm going to do something new. I'm not going to send you another prophet. I'm going to do something new. And then you have John the Baptist appearing in the desert saying, Behold. Okay, so um, we've been talking about that for a while. Now we have to say, okay, I'm going to read you a passage that is, when you talk about the churches, it's from Matthew's uh, section at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, um, 13. And this is one of the essential passages that the Catholic Church uses to remind itself uh, that. Um, that Jesus intended to create a, a community, a community with a structure. All right, so I want to read it to you, and then I want to hear a little bit about what you think, um, how, how it, what it means to you. All right. So <clears throat> when, they, when Jesus went to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, which is translated the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered the disciples to tell no one he was the Messiah. And then went and fed 5,000 people. So he really, <laughs> really watched that plan, right? But, okay. Um, now, um, <clears throat> there's a couple things um, there. Um, well, anyway, I just want to throw this out to you there. How, how does that passage hit you? What, what does it say to you as far um, as when, we talk, when we're talking about the church now? Because Jesus makes this quite um, specific you know, he's, he's allegorical quite a lot in the scripture. This doesn't, does this strike you as allegorical or does this strike you as, um, you know, um, something I've else? I've heard there was an actual rock that they were also standing on or near. No, that was done in a bad movie called um, <laughs> Max von Sydow uh, called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And, and he's saying, and I tell you, you are Peter. And then he went, and upon this rock, <laughs> oh, no, no. Yes, it's in the movie. And um, to me, that's like there's no. No. I've heard. I mean, I did see the movie. No, up until this point, you know, this man's name was Simon. 
Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So I'm saying you. Now I'm going to call you Keta, the rock. This is your new name as the, from this moment on. And um, so I'm naming you the rock. What the, the, this is a Matthew um, 17, excuse me, Matthew 16, verse, thir- I just read you verse 13 to 20. But I love that it starts with him calling him his other name, Simon. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's no mistake here. You were Simon, son of Jonah. But now you are Kephas. Yeah, I mean, to me it's, it's just, it's very, like, it's, yeah, it's very specific. Mm-hmm. And for me it's one of the most convincing passages that Christ wanted to build a specific church. And have a leader. And have a leader, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is, and I've heard people say to me, well, that was just meant for Peter. But then what do you do with, mm-hmm. and the gates of hell... But actually, the translation, the gates of the netherworld should not prevail against it. The netherworld mean, means what? Death. Right? So, you are Peter, and upon this rock, it's like, you are rock, and upon this rock, hi, Father, um, I will build my church. Okay, so everyone's like, oh, wow, Peter's going to be the first of the church. All the apostles are on board with that. And then Jesus says, and the gates of death will not prevail against this rock. Now the apostles are saying, yeah. this is true. Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows Peter's going to die. Mm-hmm. So right away the apostles' first thought is, maybe Peter doesn't die. Maybe the church is going to last during Peter's life, and sometime during Peter's life. Um, in order for this promise to be true, that's one way it could be true. Um, that, that before Peter's death, I'm coming back. And the world will end. Um, so, but if that isn't the, the interpretation, then the other one is what? That the rock is going to, the foundation of the church, the rock is going to endure. The, the death is not going to have anything to do to touch it. And then he says to the rock, you know, because it's you, you, you. How many times did he say you? I give to you. I entrust to you, right? So then it's, I give to you. Now listen to this mind blower. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys. What does that say to you? Every time you see St. Peter, he's got the keys. What does that mean, that he has the keys? keys of the house. Heaven no one else has been given, no one else been given the keys. The house is locked. <laughs> yeah. The gate is locked. There's somebody has the keys. Christ has given the key to his house to somebody else. That means nobody gets in without the key. Or not. I mean, how do you read it? <clears throat> It's a very strong word. Um, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, it, it doesn't say here that, and then Christ looked up and looked among the apostles and raised his eyes to the gathered disciples and said, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Right? This isn't in the Sermon on the Mount when he stands on the mountain and says, you are the light of the world, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Because how would that be different? Would it be different? Yeah, it would, he'd be talking to 
Exactly. Right. Do you, does this read to you like he's talking to humanity or like he's talking <clears throat> to one? I think so. It's very personal. The person whose extremely. name you just changed. Yeah, yeah. the name <laughs> you just changed. Like, there's something extremely <laughs> significant about Simon, son of Jonah. I mean, how many? That's like somebody looking at you and saying, "Blessed are you, Jennifer Dornbush." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's that's you literally what happened. But but you know why it follows there? Because something miraculous just happened right before that, and Christ is pointing to that as a sign to the other apostles and to Peter himself. What happened right before Jesus said that to him? It's right there. We read it. <coughs> What happened? Who do you say that I am? Um, right? Jesus asked this question. Who? who do you say that I am? And who answers? Peter. Can you see the scene? They're all sitting there. Who do you say that I am? And all of a sudden, Peter. <laughs> you are the Messiah, the Son of God. No one has said that yet. But, but it's so cool because Jesus names it and says, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. My father told you that. So what is he saying to Peter about the way Peter is going to be leading? That Now put that together with Peter's role now in the church or in, in, on, as the rock. Flesh and blood isn't going to be revealing to him. God is going to be saying every so often when there's a when there's a question that needs to be answered, like who do we say that he is? Flesh and blood ain't gonna reveal it. God is gonna reveal it to the rock. To Simon, son of Jonah. So and it's fine if you're like, well, that's just for Peter. That was Peter's job. But then you have to answer me the second part, that the gates of death are not going to prevail against it. Um, because, and this isn't the entire foundation of our doctrine of the hierarchy and the pope papacy and the church and everything, but it's, it's big for us. Because it says to us, if either, either it was ending with Peter, what Jesus wanted to do, or... It, it continues and that there's there is going to be a rock through the centuries that holds the keys of the kingdom that 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 doesn't die and that is the means through which not mere not flesh and blood reveals right um, now um, continue a little more there <laughs> okay, so you have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You control the gates. Uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What does that mean to you? Whatever you bind on earth? Yeah, well, I don't get that. Cool, let's talk about it. Bind as in promises or oaths or... Okay, <coughs> very good. I think that's a good sense of it. Yeah, because... Yeah. Uh, you, you can be bound by an oath. Right? Also, like, control the passion of? Or what do you mean? Um, um, like, take under control the things that are not of God. 
the best. Whatever you bind on what earth. What does that word mean? Is there any other, other other translations with another word used, or is it always that word? This translation is for a study Bible. Mm. That's very close to what, you know, the, the idea is that the, as close as we can be. But let me see if I am. Um, here it is. Okay, this is um, the explanation in the note here. Whatever you bind, loose in heaven. There are many instances in rabbinic literature of the binding, loosing imagery. Of the several meanings given there to the metaphor, two are of special importance here. The giving of authoritative teaching and the lifting or imposing of the ban of excommunication in or out of the community. It is disputed whether the image of the keys and that of binding and loosing are different metaphors, which mean the same thing. In any case, the promise of the keys is given to Peter alone. Um, all the disciples in 1818 are given the power of binding and loosing, but the context of the verse suggests that there the power of excommunication alone is intended. Okay, so um, anyway, you can read this long note here. What I think the main point is that um, binding, whatever you bind on earth. Now, the thing that I find interesting here is he's gone from the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's not earth. But whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven is suggesting that Peter is going to stand in between both worlds. He's, he's being given a power to stand between both worlds. And now, so, so bind. Um, whatever you hold, how about this one? Um, to bind is to say, is to tie someone up. It's to mm -hmm. say, um, you know, um, you're, you're not free. So, if I say to you, how about this? Um, if you experiment on your offspring, <laughs> you're not free. You're not free to do that. Um, you're not free to whatever. You're not free to decide the nature of God. You're not free to... to make yourself, to defy the laws of the cosmos, to decide to fly. You're not free to, well, right, you know, but because I think that the temptation of the garden is eat the apple and you'd be like God, having no limits. And the Pope says, no, you, you're limited. I, I'm hereby limiting you. I'm limiting you to the laws of nature. Um, so, so whatever you bind, whatever you say. Now it's not coming, it's not that we've switched out of this remember, keep it connected to the this has not been revealed by mere flesh and blood but by my father. That's the connection. It's not that all of a sudden Peter has said infallibility which we call the doctrine of papal infallibility is you can just make up your own mind. It's that when you speak rock, in your capacity as rock, you are issuing not mere flesh and blood but the words of God. It's, been, it's being revealed to you from heaven. So in that context, when you bind, it's the words of heaven. And when you loose, it's the words of heaven. Now, um, uh, okay, any thoughts on that? All right, well, let's look at how it plays out then. So we're talking about doctrine, the doctrine is infallibility, that is the big huge, I mean this becomes the problem 
in the 1054 split in the church, which is the big split. The Reformation was peanuts compared to the split between the, the East and West. And the issue came down to the filioque clause, right? Mm-hmm. Little thing about, and the sun. But the real issue came down to this. What is the stature of the Pope? And what had been the tradition of the church from the beginning was um, this, the importance of these uh, first followers of Christ, but it, you know, it, that you have immediately Peter dying and the followers of Christ getting together and choosing a new Peter. And then that guy dies, and they get together, and they choose a new Peter. And this, this, is, in the, this is in the 7th century, excuse me, the 7th decade A.D. That we trace the popes, we know who followed Peter. And we know who followed the next guy, and we know who followed the next guy. There was a thing in the community that there would be this this one person who would be the rock. Okay. Um, now, uh, the, yeah. So the split of ten fifty four comes up, and and the issue is, is there one who is the rock, or is it more of an administrative um, office. role office? Yeah. Uh, who is equal among uh, the great? What do they call it? The um, great, the, the greater among equals, something like that, right? And that's the orthodox understanding that they have the greater among equals. And the Patriarch of Constantinople is that. Um, and to tell you the truth, um, in actual application, I don't know that it plays out much differently <laughs> you know, than it does in the in the Catholic Church. But um, having said that. Um, this this split then um, you know this issue of how dare a man be how dare we say someone's infallible in the Catholic Church um, okay so let's look at that teaching then of infallibility what do we mean um, we mean that in areas of faith or morals when speaking as the rock, the Pope cannot err. Not for himself, but for the people. So that the people of God have had this promise that the, bo- the loosing and the binding, the things that you are free to do and not free to do, will be coming directly from God for all time. So, when the Pope speaks um, as the Pope in an area that has to do with faith or morals, he cannot err. We have had some screw-up Popes in the history of the Catholic Church. <laughs> the most egregious is what, Alexander VI? Borgia. And one of the things I think that non-Catholics delight in is bringing these stories, horror stories about bad folks (laughs) to Catholics, and they expect that the Catholics, when they hear that Alexander VI had illegitimate children and killed people, that we're going to go, oh, (laughs) I shouldn't be Catholic. But it actually has the opposite effect, because the thing that is, is that we go, it's amazing, isn't it? And yet Alexander VI never taught contrary to church. He never taught an error in regards to faith and morals. 
Um, and, you know, the day, um, every so often you hear the media say stuff like, well, the Catholic Church is rethinking, it's possibly going to rethink its position on, on um, you know, what now? Murder. Murder. <laughs> or, you know, well, no, you know, it's usually going to be some of these bioethical issues, you know, like, uh, like, stem, like cells. stem cells, right. Yeah. The Catholic Church is really rethinking this. <laughs> and you sit there and snore because you know the Catholic Church cannot change. <laughs> It can't not change. You know, once the once an entity is on that trajectory, remember the line that I wrote I drew? You know, once you have forty six chromosomes, a human, a thing that is now possibly gonna end up in the beatific vision. You cannot do anything to it. You can't. And the Catholic Church is not gonna change on that. So that that's a mis a fundamental misunderstanding of um, of who we are as a people and what the Pope can and cannot do. Now, there are things the Pope can change, and, and the big one, for example, is married priests and women priests. Okay? The, the Pope can absolutely allow married priests. It's a discipline. Being married doesn't touch the ability to transact the sacraments. It makes it has to do with the efficacious, not excuse me, not the efficacious. It has to do with the the um, Availability of the of the priest has to do with his personal holiness, possibly has to do with you know other stuff, but the ability to forgive sins, the ability to conduct the Eucharist, the ability to um, to uh, ordain, no, don't touch that. So that um, that area of of allowing people to get married and be priests, we could do tomorrow, and they're always talking about it. You know, there were, the reason priests, I forget the year it happened, but it was just it was just out of control. Priests in Europe with families becoming, because the church owned lands, became dynastic. It, it just became a nightmare, you know. So it was like, eh, we're going to stop this. Um, so, uh, and also, frankly, the priest's area is in the area of the spiritual sphere, not the temporal sphere. And that is a good way of separating from that. So a priest does not have to worry about paying for his kid's education. That's the temporal worry. His main concern is his people, his flock. Now, could it change tomorrow? Absolutely. And if it does, I'm on the raw, raw team. Father Don, get married. This is a fundamentally different issue than if the Pope can decide women should be priests. This one's a theological problem. It has to do with the sacrament of, of ordination, where we have a man and the imposition of hands, where men, the ordained priests, impose hands over a man, a male. And then that person now is, is uh, his soul is changed. The character of his soul is changed in ordination. Ordaining a woman is like ordaining a rabbit. <laughs> Theologically. It wouldn't take. So the, the Pope cannot just decide that. It would be an error. Okay? Can I yeah. add to that? Please, please mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Um, that's funny because I've heard it. There's a... 
as a priest in Chicago, I would say, or being a woman, like, or being a cat. <laughs> but, but when you leave it at that, they're like, wait a minute. But I think, you know, behind that is the, behind that is the symbolism. So that, so when you're, when you're talking about sacrament, there's matter and form. Mm -hmm. So the matter needs to symbolize what, the, what grace is being, con you know, communicated. And so the reason why it needs to be a man is because that priest is an, what they call an altar Christus, so an, another Christ. Jesus was a man. Jesus is... Uh, and, and you know uh, he's also considered what, what's the symbol of Jesus as well he's the bridegroom right mm -hmm. he's married to the church the church is the bride now if you have a woman who the woman now becomes the bridegroom married to what the bride the church I mean you know mm -hmm. the, the symbolism gets all messed up too <laughs> we'll actually cover this issue a lot more in a lot more depth when we get to ordination. I just wanted to kind of throw it out as a, and it's good that you did because we don't want to leave that in people's brains, you know. And I need to be dismissive when I say it's like baptizing a rabbit, but to tell you the truth, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but women see, are rabbits. <laughs> well, the point that I was making is that the male is part of the matter of the sacrament. Yeah. So and it might have to be defined eventually. What it symbolizes, um, yeah. yeah. When so a woman is um, mm -hmm. like becomes a nun, what is that called? It's not ordination. Not That's, ordination. Yeah. So different, Some like religious life. Yeah. Is there a mm -hmm. um, a representation just like similar? Like, is does a nun represent Mary or no. like something like that? No. No. Like that. Nuns are lay people. Okay. Yeah. Technically, they're lay people. The 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 um the um they're they're single life lay people. So the three states in life in the church, and this is when you read Lumen Gentium, and it'll come out even more, um, that affect um, that for the service of the church. So one is the state in life is the most common one, which is marriage, where you work out your salvation by binding yourself in the sight of God and the church, accepted by the church. On, on it's this is why marriage is indissoluble, because the church hears you and says, okay. We will bind you. So, so you are bound to another person, and your salvation is now in, in, in intrinsically wrapped up in theirs. Where you're making it together. Okay, that's one state in life. The second one is ordination, where your soul, the character of your soul, is altered. The soul of the, of a man ordained, we believe, it changes, so that he can then be a vessel of prophecy, revelation, and this thing of being an altar Christus. You know, to be the the bearer, not the bearer, to be the the um, the stand-in. Right. Something has to change in him, in his soul, so that Christ can can act through him. And then the third one is the single life, <clears throat> where where Saint Paul says, if you're gonna burn, get married, but it's better to be like me. <laughs> you know, totally dedicated to the church totally attached to the everyone as family where you you literally embrace strangers the way parents embrace their children like that um is the single life and nuns are part of that um, i guess i was more asking about the like mm -hmm. when a man is ordained as a priest there's a like a physical change in his soul in his soul it's right so is it physical but it's, right. yeah right there's I a think, mark um, we say it's a mark on the soul um okay mm -hmm. But like, um, there's different symbolism mm -hmm. that I was just interested in with with the single, like with Mary. You know, they say that's a symbol of 
right. something. Um, but anyway, we can talk about that. We absolutely can. And um, and and to take it, these issues are we're going to have days on all of them on ordination and on matrimony and everything. I'm, well, I'm, I just want to throw it out there as an example of an issue that it, that one can be changed by the Pope and another one can't because one has to do with articles of faith and the, the priesthood was set up by Christ we don't get to do that we don't get to just rethink that and, and a lot of time and unfortunately one thing that's so unsatisfying to the feminist scholars when they say to the church you know why? Why don't ordain women? And, and unfortunately, a lot of the time, the church has con- got this whole big argument from sp- so um, from symbolism and everything. But really, the reason is a shrug, because Jesus didn't do it, and he had every opportunity to ordain his mother, to ordain Mary Magdalene, but he didn't do it. So um, the, the Pope says, "I don't have the authority." I'm the rock, and I'm supposed to keep this stuff intact, and I don't have that authority. Okay. Yes? So maybe this is the wrong place to bring no, up this question, but mm-hmm. what's the non-Catholic's argument then, a non-Catholic, you know, Presbyterian, whatever, to say women should be ordained? What's their argument for mm-hmm. how do they justify it, or how do they, they say, how do they overlook this argument from the Catholic side? They say we are all equal spiritually, that there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, that's from St. Paul. So Therefore, um, anyone can have any job in the kingdom. Now, when St. Paul was saying that, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no male or female, there is no slave or free, what was he referring to? He was talking about... The of Christ. Right, exactly. You know, he was answering the question of circumcision. Mm -hmm. Do people need to become Jews? And he's saying salvation is now, in God's eyes now, after Christ, it's Christ who stands by the Father as a man, and it's like there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, salvation is for all. But to take that argument that salvation is now for them all, to to say that any job in the kingdom, every role in the kingdom is is neutered now. So what would their argument be, for example, saying that it kind of throws off the symbolism and whatnot, or they just kind of... Well, one thing about Presbyterianism is that, I mean, I don't know about the whole issue with ordaining Women in because they would be like ordained ministers, right? In the, but they see they don't have the mass, mm-hmm. you know, and so they it, don't have the sacrifice. It really wouldn't. Right. I guess I don't know if that would matter. Not really comparing yeah. apples and apples. <coughs> not in that yeah, case. Now, sense. now okay. in the Anglican Church, now you're kind of getting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they are. So there's one wing of the Anglican Church that ordains mm-hmm. that, uh, pre, that women are priests, but that's where it really starts to fly in the face mm-hmm. of you know, you know. If you really start breaking breaking it down and what that represents, yeah. it, it's turning things. The reason they're open to it, frankly, is because the perception of ministers in Protestantism has become, with the diminution of the sac- diminution of the sacraments that happened in um, Luther and Calvin, where basically they threw out all the sacraments except matrimony and baptism. Mm-hmm. You know, baptism and matrimony. Now, they Luther kept <coughs> the Lord's Supper but said that the sacramental presence stopped as soon as the bread went on the person's tongue, or or as soon as they swallowed it, I forget, was some little distinction. Anybody know? Anyway, it was one of those, that that Jesus, like, vanished as soon as the the act of reception happened. Because he was too good a theologian not to know that the Eucharist was (laughs) was really real, but then he just... (laughs) 
He just didn't know what to do with it after that, and the ramifications of keeping the Eucharist mean you have to have the Catholic Church to protect it, to deliver it, to perpetuate it, to to ordain it, et cetera, et cetera. So right? he did believe in, in the He believed in, in, in the Eucharist. Up to, up to yeah. the point. Yeah, up to the point. Well, yeah. 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 Right. Is it also possible because they they look at this verse of Matthew sixteen thirteen and they don't see it as Peter lasting for all eternity? It's like they look at Peter as Peter then, and then after that, yeah. There isn't and this I mean, I continuation think of, of I think this Peter. is one of those passages that Protestants don't want to think about a lot. I mean, it's like John six; they don't want to think about it a lot. But what here's what I was where I was going with this. So the ministry of the priest after the Reformation becomes strictly a preaching ministry. Mm-hmm. Right? So you study theology so that you can preach. Now that, anybody can do. Because there's not necessarily any symbolism involved in preaching. But in losing the sacraments, then you also lose the priesthood. And that's what happens in Protestantism. So it makes no sense not to have Presbyterian preachers. I heck, I can preach better than eighty percent. You know what? Ninety percent of the priests I hear. I sit there like this, thinking, I cannot believe he just took that gospel and did that. But at the same time, um, there's a you know there's a weird thing where the priest has a voice of authority in his preaching that when we talk about ordination um, will come through. And um, even the lamest guys, sometimes it, it just amazes you that that because of, of of their connection, their ordination, and the grace of it. So, but anyway, that's what I think happened. That um, that they became open to women's ordination because they didn't have this uh, transmission of the sacraments function anymore. So, okay. So this idea now um, in the church that we're going to have this um, presence. <coughs> of the rock, a rock speaking through the ages in the area of faith and morals. So it's very important. The thing I really want you to brood over is what faith and morals means. Because when the Pope says, when you hear, for example, that someone in the Vatican put in L'Osservatore Romano, which is the official newspaper of the, of the thing, last week, someone emailed me, did you see L'Osservatore Romano had an article saying Harry Potter was bad? The Catholic Church has spoken. It's <laughs> right. literally what I got. And, see, and this is a Catholic who has absolutely no excuse. Because she knows that that is not an area of faith or morals. You know, it's, like, it's like the same thing as we, you asking Rosalind Moss to tell you about movies. You know what? That ain't her area. That's not her area. She's fabulous in her area. So it's the same thing. And when popes have strayed from their area and have spoken authoritatively about things that aren't faith and morals, it's a source of scandal in the church. You have to be very careful. You know? Like, oh, yellow's a pretty color. <gasps> the pope said yellow is the best color! We only have to have yellow! It's like, no, the church needs to like put the brakes on and say this is not you functioning as the rock. You're not binding in heaven by making yellow now the best color. Yeah, when JP2 talked about the war in Iraq, like when it first started, that was just... Yes, from his perspective, he is a shepherd of people. And he has a church in Iraq, and he knew once the lid came off, the Christians in Iraq were going to get decimated. So he was acting, I believe, as the pastor, the 
uh, of the people of Iraq, the church in Iraq. But frankly, the making of war and the making of decisions is the temporal realm. It belongs to you, the laity. You're the one who gets to decide if you fight a war and if it's just or not. If you have a confusion about whether it's just or not, you can go to a, a theologian and ask his opinion. But if the Pope rules a war is just or not, it's just not his role. And he's going to make a mistake. Hence, crusades. <laughs> so, so that's what you have to have clear. We don't believe in the church because popes have never made mistakes. We believe in the church because when popes speak in the area of faith or morals, what is essential to the key of the kingdom of heaven, getting in or not, they don't make a mistake. And one of the number one reasons people have come into the church in the last 40 years is because in the area of the life area, the culture of life arena, with all of the nuts craziness going on, the Catholic Church has remained steadfastly, inerrantly focused on human life. And, and I don't care if it's with Terry Schiavo, or extraordinary means, euthanasia, mercy killing, stem cell research, abortion, all of these things, Catholic Church has been the one constant that has, has been absolutely... And I know a lot of Protestants who, because of that, have said you know, that example is the one, the one flagpole, the one rock in this moment when humanity is losing its sense of itself. We don't even know what human is anymore if it wasn't for the Catholic Church. Can I add yes, please, Father. And, please, please. And I know, yeah, and, and just to, to build on what, what uh, Barbara was saying is that, you know, and a pope is not going to come out with something out of the blue, too, and say and rule on something. Usually when the, he speaks authoritatively and he's going to put himself out there like that, it is backed up by tradition, and he's bound by tradition. And by all the statements and decrees and things that have happened in the past, so if he is going to make a, a a statement in light of current times of an issue, yeah. it's going to be studied and, it, and it's looking at the tradition and make sure it doesn't conflict with our with the stance you know with with uh, the basic principles that the church has had in the past two thousand years. It's a great um, mm -hmm. a great point, and so that leads us into the next point, which is the distinction between ordinary magisterium. An extraordinary magisterium. Yes. A quick question before we move. Sure. <laughs> when the Pope speaks yeah. like that, yeah. is, is there a ceremony or is mm -hmm. there like, okay, I'm speaking as the there's Pope? A, there's actually a document and it's called an it's called ex cathedra, which literally means from the chair. That means the Pope seat sits in the chair of Peter, on the rock <laughs> as the rock, right, and then says, "This is true or not true." How many times has it happened in the last 50 years? Anybody know? Once. Really? Well, well twice. Twice, yeah. right. Yeah. Twice in the last 50 years. That's it. That's ever. Yeah. And who did it involve? Mary. Oh. Well, actually, um, you know, then... then um, twice in 2,000 years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> twice in 2,000 years. Well, yeah. 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 Twice in the last 50 years. Actually, um, <laughs> every time you're... Ex-cathedra, the you're others were <coughs> through councils. Right, through councils. Very good. It's a good point. The church has spoken, the Pope has spoken dogmatically every time it, it, he issues a dogmatic document. So Vatican II had two of them. So I was going to say the last 50 years there were two times, and that was 
um, Lumen Gentium and uh, De Verbum, the two documents on scripture and on, um, and on the church. Pope said, you must believe, if you are Catholic, if you believe in Jesus, you must believe the things we're writing in these two documents. We're clearing this up. And so that's why it's very important to read that. Now, uh, in the 20th century, in 1954, there was a Marian dogmatic statement, uh, ex cathedra statement, and then there was, it was 1854, and was, was 1950. 1950, very good, thank you. And um, so the Immaculate Conception was in, in the um, 1850s, and the um, um, the assumption of Mary in the uh, 1950s. So uh, we'll talk about, we can talk about those, um, but the point is, extraordinary magisterium, when, when Peter really teaches from the rock, is a rare thing now. Why? Why? Think about it. Because there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Most of the stuff was in the early years of the church. There were councils every 30, 40 years. Look at the early councils of the church. From Constantinople, you got Ephesus, you got Chalcedon, you got and every one of them is a dogmatic council. Because they're like, okay, we got to decide who Jesus is this time. We got to decide what's in the Bible this time. We got to decide who Mary is. We got to decide, you know, uh, who's in or out in the church, right? These, so they were working everything out, and there was so much confusion that the, the church had to keep getting together and saying, okay, what is the truth? And they would do the same process that we do today. All the bishops of the church, the bishops who are special ordination, they have the highest level of ordination. Right? The priest has a, a mark on his soul, first level of ordination, second level of ordination, there's diaconate, actually there's three levels of ordination. right? Diaconate, priesthood, and then bishop. Pope doesn't have a special level of ordination. He's just a bishop. So um, all the bishops get together and pray. And there's an area of confusion. Um, and while, uh, excuse me, there's something there's something we have to say about the area of confusion, which Father talked about. A fight starts <laughs> in the church. And the church, knowing this is the process, allows the fight to go on for decades, sometimes <laughs> hundreds of years. Why hundreds of years? Because the church wants all the parties to die. <laughs> who said anything significant. <laughs> they do. So it's like, because they're afraid that, wow, Barbara Nicolosi has some great ideas about media and the church and media. But she has a following and a lot of personal charisma. We need her to die. She's gone <laughs> for 75 years. So her charisma's gone. Her relationships are gone. Her network's gone. And all that's standing is the thing she said. And then we can look at it without any of those things. So there's this process when the church has an area of dispute. You know, you've ever heard the expression, Rome is very patient. Rome moves slowly. It's for this reason. God has all the time in the world. So when there's an area of dispute, um, the church will leave it out there and let theologians on both sides argue and argue and argue. Sometimes it's not done so gracefully. There was actually a brawl at one of the Council. This was way back, like some monks. It was over the Arian controversy. Oh, right, sure. Did you, yeah. you ever hear about that? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. There was a. There was a <laughs> it's funny, you. actually. It's yeah, a, I know. <laughs> a bunch of bishops beating on each other. Um, but uh, was yeah. there just another one a couple of weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> two ago. Maybe it wasn't Catholic, but there were two 
in some really? church with the cleaning of a church or something. Oh, no. So, so you have an issue, for example, like um, um, like the Immaculate Conception. This is a good one. Okay. So, was Mary uh, was she born in sin and then purged? Everybody agreed that Mary had to have no sin when she conceived Jesus. <laughs> but was she purged of her sin? So, was she born in sin? And then God went, (laughs) (laughs) so her soul was purged so that she would then not sin, Um, so that she would be a fitting vessel to provide, you know, to be the mother to provide the 23 chromosomes of the Savior, right? Okay, so um, is that what happened? Which which is it? So fight, 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 fight. St. Thomas Aquinas thought she was born in sin and purged. He was wrong. The angelic doctor was on the wrong side of this one, but he made some very good arguments. So that's the 13th century. The 13th century St. Thomas dies on his way to present a paper with his opinion that Mary um, was not immaculately conceived. And um, when did the church finally rule? 1854! (laughs) 500 (laughs) years later! The church finally said, it's time. Um, so with, what happened is then, you have the consensus of the theologians, the fighting and the warring and all the opinions, it's all out there. And then the bishops come together and pray with the Pope, the apostles together. Um, bishops are the apostles. Right? And then the Pope steps back and speaks. And then it's over. And everybody goes, <coughs> <sighs> Now, this area of woman's ordination, people are calling for this kind of statement to be made because it's causing tremendous fighting you know, um, in the church. We'll see if it's only a baby boomer thing or if it's really going to survive them, but it's been a huge problem for the baby boomers because their influence was so much by the women's movement. And so they just wanted to bring the political movements into the church, and that was one of them, you know, and to say, okay, well, now we've done this in the world. Why can't the church just make everything the same too? So John Paul II, I had, I had breakfast with a theologian who had just come from meeting, having breakfast with the Pope, and he said the Pope had 12 theologians around the table and said to them, please someone give me a good theological argument against women's ordination. And um, because they, they, he realized the main argument the church has is from symbolism and from authority. Um, so what does that mean? It means it's out there. But there is no way they are going to make this ruling while Sister Teresa Kane is still alive. <laughs> you know who she is. She's the one who stood up and faced John Paul II when he came to Washington and said, "Ordain women." And and um, that's like it's got, they've all got to die. And and then and then, um, if it's still out there, um, the church will rule. But see, one of the things that happens, and you're saying, "Well, why let the confusion go on?" Because that's how the church deepens. You, there's no growth without tension. And we're like little cows and sheep. We like to chew and burp and scratch. <laughs> it's only when there's trouble, when there's a confusion, that we get riled. And you're like, I'm going to read this book on this. I'm so mad about this women's ordination thing. I'm going to think about it. Figure out my way, right? And then you get so riled and you write a book and somebody else reads it and they get riled. And through that process, the church deepens. 
So one of the beautiful things about being in the church, in the Catholic church, is that we're not afraid of this kind of thing. It's part of who we are. It's a little uncomfortable. But the cool thing is, this is why when you become a Catholic, you encounter this, what we call, depth of teaching. So any area you at all want to talk about. You want to talk about papal authority? I will show you 800 books. 800. You can find them. That go back to the 3rd, 4th century. and, and you, know. you want to do that? We've been brooding over this one. When the, the first Vatican, this is Vatican II. You know what Vatican I was on? Papal infallibility. Late 19th century. They made one statement. The Pope is infallible in the areas of faith and doctrine and morals. But before that, there had been hundreds of years of fighting. That, that a, a decision in the late 19th century was the church's reaction to Luther and Calvin that had happened in the 15, early 1500s. But they needed three or four hundred years to think about it. Okay? So you're like, but what, what all the bloodshed, all the fighting, all the terror, all the things like, yeah, unfortunately... Nothing that costs nothing is worth anything. Right? Was there a main statement from Vatican II, or was it on several? Vatican II put out 16 main statements. Okay. However, two of them were dogmatic. You must believe. Okay. We are one big, happy, dysfunctional Italian family. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, so... Yeah. Oh, okay. Are you moving on? Or um, well, I'm going to continue, question? but go ahead. What do you got? Well, what I'm curious about is the and maybe this is a different class mm -hmm. the line how, how that looks okay. all right we call that apostolic succession is that what you mean yeah okay mm -hmm. all right so so we've evolved this understanding now jesus didn't explain all this but what he did do was we can look at history and clearly see that the apostles and their immediate successors had already had some traditions and one of them was that there is a rock, that there is a Peter. Because immediately at Peter's death, we anoint a new pope. The apostles get together and they choose a new pope. And then that continues. There was always this sense, and if you look in Acts, what's the first thing that the apostles do? Even before Pentecost, right? Yeah, I think it's even before Pentecost. What's the first thing they do when they go into the upper room? They, they pick a new they apostle. They pick a new yeah. apostle. Yeah. From among the, the, the 72 disciples who are whatever, the crowd of disciples who've been with us, mm -hmm. let us choose one to assume the, the, the role of Judas, the chair, the place of Judas. So they already had a sense that the apostles were at a different level than the other disciples. Um, now that continues as when the apostles spread out during the persecution... So then the apostle then brings that stature to wherever he ends up. And he becomes the one who is the, quote, ordinary magisterium. What do we mean by that? That that meant that the apostle, you know, who is like um, Thomas, goes to India. And they say to him in India, when we, uh, we don't have too much bread here. How about we use rice? <laughs> and Thomas says, No. It's bread. I don't get to do that. Now, this word magisterium, it comes from the Latin meaning uh, from magister, which means the teacher. And the sense of magister, though, is very beautiful. If you look at iconography, 
the magister, when Christ is portrayed as the magister, he's always <coughs> seated, right? Usually has the book and his hand up. Because that was the posture of authority, teaching authority, was uh, to hold out the hand and say, you know, um, I'm, I'm almost testifying here. And, and the book is open in my hand here. So I'm, I'm speaking with authority, testifying based on the open of the book. So that word we use to now refer to the teaching authority of the church. Call it the magisterium. Now the extraordinary magisterium we already spoke about. This is when the Pope speaks ex cathedra or, or when, um, to tell you the truth, dog, I'm going to put the whole realm of dogmatic statements when the church, the Pope actually says, this you must believe. I'm clearing this up. That is very rare um, nowadays because it's all been settled. There's just not that much new stuff out there. Um, but ordinary magisterium is the ongoing communication of the gospel and what it means, the life of the church, and what it means through the, the apostles today who, who have assumed the mantle of, or the bishops today who have assumed the mantle of the apostles. Because what happened, answering your question, Thomas goes to India, sets up a local church, teaches. When Thomas dies, what happens? What does the church do? We need an arbiter. We need to choose one from among ourselves to do the thing that Thomas, St. Thomas, did for us. Which was make sure that we don't depart from the teaching of that Jesus gave him. Now, so, so then the new guy comes in and what does he do? He clings to the Gospels clings to the words of Thomas, you know, clings to the traditions, the things Thomas did, because it's like, if Thomas didn't do it, then Jesus didn't do it. Because Thomas learned from Jesus. This is the foundation of apostolic succession in the church. And it really comes back to, over and over, this sense of, I'm a bishop, I got this C, you know, part of Mahoney, got this C, S-E is the word that we use. He got it from Cardinal um, Manning, McIntyre, McIntyre, right? Whoever was before him. He got it from the other guy. And he got it from the other guy. All the way back to probably St. James out of Spain. Yes. Can I read something here? Because Please. This, this yeah. is an issue that's uh, just really important for me in, in yeah. my faith and understand, you know, where I'm going. And yeah. So I was doing a bunch of research online, and this is from St. Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. Irenaeus, great. Irenaeus mm -hmm. from. Is he the one who said. Um, the glory of God is man fully alive. Yeah, yeah very good, very good. So he was born in the year 130. <laughs> You're very, you get very erudite. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's important to me that you know I, the Catholic Church is really you know mm -hmm. in this apostolic Absolutely. tradition. Yeah, so this is the biggie. He 130 to 202 was when he was alive, and he wrote. He was a bishop. Antioch was he? Um, of Lyons. Lyon, Leon. Okay, right. And and a, and a prolific writer. So. Mm -hmm. The blessed apostles then, having founded and built up the church, committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the episcopate. Of, of this Linus, Paul makes mention in the epistles to Timothy. To him succeeds Anacletus, and after him, in the third place from the apostles, Clement. Mm -hmm. um, and then the popes. Yeah, right. and then it yeah. goes on. He talks about some schism or something, mm -hmm. and then it goes on. 
And he just names after Clement there was Evaristus, Alexander followed Evaristus, and then six, the sixth from the apostles, mm -hmm. then Sixtus, and then after him Teleporus. So yeah. it was just interesting that, you know, here it was, mm -hmm. you know, from the beginning, and he lists yeah. everybody. That was the system that the apostles had learned from Jesus. That he, Jesus had had set apart Peter. And you know, and if you look at already, even when Jesus is alive, Peter is in that little teeny group that gets extra instruction. You know, he gets to witness the transfiguration. He gets to um, he gets into the into the courtyard while Jesus is being on trial. He gets. Uh, what else? Is, oh, he gets to. Um, where else does he get taken? There's one other place where he gets taken aside, at least. Anyway, so you see already Peter is getting. You know, Jesus is like. <clears throat> Peter's getting a little more here, right? And then, um, but then as soon as as soon as you have the ascension, like it's funny, isn't it? In Acts, it doesn't say, and the disciples looked around and decided to hold an election, <laughs> and then they elected Peter to be their spokesman. It's not that way. What happens? When, it, when Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, Peter rises up and then, and then speaks. And they were all okay. It's a funny thing, but there's no, no one ever says in Acts, wait a minute, Peter, I want to be president. Because Peter's relationship to the others had already been established. So when Peter is taken out of the picture, the first thing they do is we need another one like that because that's the structure that Jesus gave us to stay so that we have this, this transmitter. You know, it's like Peter is the radio and, and God is the transmitter. And whoever is in that rock chair um, through the centuries... It becomes the one through whom when God needs to speak to the people with authority in an area of seriousness uh, that, that, that voice is going to be something trustworthy and you know what it's like if the Pope ever screws up and tells us abortion is okay I'll be like cool and then go look Jesus in the face and say it is not my problem <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus will have to say come on in but it won't happen. It, it won't happen. It's never happened that we've ever had a teaching on faith and morals um, that is new. What we've had is developments, we've had depth, but nothing has ever changed. Quite frankly, I mean, if the Pope did do that, yeah, which could happen, yeah, it would be a sign. He'd probably the take him away in a straitjacket. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it would be a sign that his election had somehow not, you know, that, was, that yeah. he wasn't uh, a Pope, uh, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where, yeah, where is that check and balance? Like you were talking about that before right. about how it's all based on you know research and history and prior right. when he speaks, but using something not maybe quite as drastic as abortion is right. okay, but yellow is the best color. Right. Uh -huh. What's the check and balance to say yes it's he's right or no he rules. isn't? Mm -hmm. Well, did I, did I miss that somewhere? Where is that like? Well, he wouldn't say it. I mean, if he did say it, then people half people <coughs> would do what they did the lady with the letter to um, me about Harry Potter. See, the Vatican is spoken. Harry Potter is evil, and I'm like, mm, yeah. The Vatican is not. This is not the area in which I am obliged as a Catholic to give my obedience to the Vatican. 
And it, it's so backed mm -hmm. up by scripture, yeah. catechism, mm -hmm. scripture, catech you know, catechism is really is part of our tradition. The tradition, the documents that the church has had, it is so. Mm -hmm. That's why it's impossible. It, it'd be if a even if a pope did like he went crazy and came, spoke out, mm -hmm. you know, everybody'd be like, you know, I mean, there'd be the cardinals around him would probably really seriously consider his mental state because mm -hmm. it would be so against what's in mm -hmm. in. You know, on paper. Yeah. <laughs> but what about something that isn't quite that clear cut? Like, what's, right. you know, you say, like, example, the Harry Potter. Right. right. You know, that's not your obligation, but. Right. Here's what I do with that. Because. How, how do you, for everyone individually, mm -hmm. to kind of come up with that? Someone, mm -hmm. you know, are you going to have the same discussion? Well, with? first of all, it wouldn't be binding. You know, like, they didn't put out a statement that L'Osservatore Romano mm -hmm. had an, what it was, was an article by some priest or monsignor in in Italy that pub was published in L'Osservatore Romano, which is the official statement, the official newspaper of the Vatican. But, you know, L'Osservatore Romano also prints the Pope's schedule. <laughs> you know, it, it prints about the, the college kids who brought the Pope uh, a banner from their soccer game, you know. So, so what happened in that situation was this woman hates Harry Potter and has been saying all along it's a bad thing, and she was looking for some kind of a thing to kind of, the argument for authority to back it up. And for the context, there was another article alongside it with an opposite view. Really? Yeah. Which the lady did not tell me about in the email. Right. So it being just a newspaper okay. article, it's yes. nothing that says, as Catholics, here's what we believe, right. here's what you That's need to Yeah, I mean, the Pope could express, I don't like these books, <clears throat> and then, to tell you the truth, because he is the Pope... And we know he's praying all day long, and he's wise and everything. I would give that an ear. I would listen to that carefully. But am I bound by it? Does it fall under this? No. 